Let's continue worship with a reading from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. This is the word of the Lord. Jump the gun. Hey, guys. Y'all doing good? Welcome to church. I'm Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. Glad you're with us. Um, well, it's the end of 2023, and we all sit at the precipice of 2024, and every year um, on this Sunday, I like to reflect on something that connects to all the sentiments and feelings that every time the clock rolls around another calendar year. Um, New Year's tends to stir up emotions in people, doesn't it? Um, it seems somewhere in the subconscious, um, every time another year, another one year ends, another one begins, um, this flicker of hope kind of pops up in our hearts and in almost everyone's mind that like, hey, this is the year, right? Like I'm really going to do it this time or I'm going to hit the gym or, or I'm going to floss, right? Or uh, I'm going to diet, like I'm really going to do it. And it feels like an automatic reboot, doesn't it? Uh, most people feel um, they need automatic reboots from time to time. I think you have a little low-end hum, but you might want to pull that down some. Um, and it's like uh, under the surface, there's kind of like this folklore in our culture that every time a year clicks around, like we all get a, new, a brand new start, right? Um, and we tend to kind of um, stare at the future with rose-colored glasses. Um, but what we really want, I think, most of us, every time the new year comes around, what we really want is a catalyst for change. Am I, am I right? Isn't that what it is? Like every time the new year rolls around, we're like, you know what? I could go for some real change in my life. I think we all have this kind of deep-seated feeling that there are things in my life that I wish were different. And New Year seems to be like kind of the perfect excuse to finally do something about it. So you've probably maybe already started to make like a really ambitious list. Anyone has started to do that? Ambitious list? No one. Awesome. So we're all, okay, cool. It's fine. Um, I have. That's great. I hope you have. That's, don't get me wrong. I'm all in. I love New Year's. Um, I actually love the annual invitation to pause and to reflect and to ask yourself um, like questions like this, like questions we don't typically ask ourselves, like this. Am I the person that I really want to be? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> Do you routinely take time and ask questions like that? Or this, this question. Um, Am I doing things in my life that make for like real joy? Like am I doing anything in my life that makes for real joy in my family or in my work or questions like this? Like what do my habits actually say about my values? You know, typically uh, we have really beautiful values, right? 
like love people, you know? Should people love people? Oh yeah, totally. Should you be kind to people? Oh yeah, absolutely. But then you have these things called habits, <laughs> which is like how you really live. And it's fascinating if you look at the difference between people's values and their habits. Sometimes there's a really, really big gap in between the things we say we value and then how we actually live. And if you don't routinely take time to ask yourself questions like, hey, man, like I guess I'm a Christian, I wanna be a Christian, but is the way I'm living actually lining up with the things that I say I believe? If you don't take time to do that, I just, I have, I mean, unfortunate news for you. Um, you will just drift into hypocrisy. Like you'll show up to things like this and you're already checked out. Like even right now, you're like, oh crap, he's onto me. Yes, I've just checked out. Because you'll, you'll, you'll lose the meaning of the thing. It won't have any value to it. You know, there's no value because your life doesn't really exhibit the fact that you actually value that. And after a while, your brain catches up with your body. I actually don't value this, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, does that make sense? Anyway, that type of reflection, y'all, is actually what the New Testament means when it says the word repentance. You know, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. We say this a lot around here because we need to repent a lot around here. At least I do. You know what the word means? It means to think after your thinking. To think about your thinking, that's what metanoia means. It means to think about the way that you're thinking about life. We're getting real meta here, not Facebook, but meta, right? Outside of the physical universe, metanoia means get outside of the way you're thinking. And dude, if you're into that kind of reflection, I'm all into New Year's, right? And I would say, in fact, if you're not that kind of person... If you're the kind of person that says, you know, I'm just not the kind of reflective, stare out a window and sip hot tea, you know, I'm just, I don't find that productive or attractive, I'm more a man of action, okay, that's cool. I would just encourage you to reconsider for a second and submit to you the idea that there is nothing attractive or productive about living an unexamined life. You should take time to examine your life. It's in the word, y'all. The Bible calls us to do this, and I would encourage you today. You had, we're on the precipice of a new year. Why not take time to reflect on some deeper questions about meaning and significance and what the heck we're all doing here and what's my life even about and why do I get up in the morning? Sometimes we're scared of questions like that, and I would encourage you to wade into those waters with the Holy Spirit as your guide. He is beside you and has new things for you in 2024. And I just wonder if we're too busy to sit down long enough for five seconds to ask meaningful questions, y'all. I think 2024, the turn of every year, is a wonderful invitation to you. Not necessarily to mount up with all of your ambitious to-do lists, but to stop and reflect and say, am I the kind of person God's calling me to be? So I think we all know, at least most of us, the honest ones, know that we need change. Most of us know that. Most of us know, like, you know what? There's things about my life that, like, I would like they, they were different. Maybe it's my job or my marriage or how I think about certain things. But my question is, is New Year's enough? Like, fireworks. I love fireworks. Is the calendar change enough? Like, is the fact that you have to go buy a new calendar now is that enough to catalyze real change in your life? The fact that tomorrow's going to be 2024. Some people, it kind of is. That's all they need. Not, not all, though. Not all. I would guess many people tonight will be just like any other night, pretty much the same. Maybe you'll go to a party. Uh, but then next week or tomorrow morning, you'll wake up and you'll feel pretty much the same. 
my life is my life. Nothing really changed. And sometimes we have this kind of um, regret. Anyone get that? You guys, anyone get that after Christmas? Like after Christmas happens, you're like, that was it. All the hubbub for this. New Year's is very much that, that way for a lot of people. It comes and goes, and we think it was supposed to do something, and it really doesn't do anything. And just got, we should ask the question, is that enough to catalyze real change? What really motivates people to change their life? Have you ever thought about this? Some, some psychologists have, probably. What actually motivates people to change? Like books have been, dissertations written about this. What motivates change? What makes for lasting change in someone's personality? What actually changes someone's habits? How do you actually, guys, anyone? No, you don't think about this. Like seriously, have you ever, like what really changes people? What changes patterns of thinking? What changes patterns of habits? And, And there's lots of things. Lots of things change people. Do you know one thing that really changes people pretty effectively? It's not happy. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's actually a bummer, a pain. Pain is an extremely motivating catalyst for change. Um, usually, it takes a certain amount of discomfort for you to ask the kind of questions that I was inviting you to ask earlier. Like, what is my life about? Like, do I actually have any real meaning or motivation for the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing in my life? Where am I going? Usually, it's things like pain and discomforts that causes us to reconsider our ways. One doctor visit, y'all, with words like chronic or incurable, usually snap our minds to attention. C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it's true, y'all. Pain is a motivator for real change, whether you like it or not. (laughs) However, in Amos 4... God talks about pain causing change in his people. And you know what? He says it's very fascinating. You should go read Amos 4 today. He he says, in Amos 4, he says, you know, after all the pain I have sent, I have sent. That's what Amos 4 says. That'll mess with your theology, I think. He says, after all the things I've sent, drought, disease, destruction, they did not return to me. Amos 4 will mess with your theology, y'all. The Bible acknowledges that pain is a pretty effective thing to cause us to actually reconsider our ways. But in Amos 4, we see sometimes it's not enough. God says sometimes it's not enough. He's it's like our own refrain. Go read Amos 4, dude. It's awesome. Well, it's not awesome. It's like startling and sobering. And, you know, uh, he says, I sent this. I sent droughts. I sent this. And still you didn't reconsider your ways. And then this happened. And still you didn't reconsider your ways. So pain's there, but it's, sometimes it's insufficient. Um, there is, I think, a stronger motivation that actually causes people to change. It's a stronger motivator, stronger catalyst. Um, It's not uh, what we want to avoid. That's pain, you know? 
You change if pain is on the precipice because you want to avoid it. That's a very strong motivator. I believe there's a stronger one. And it's not what you want to avoid. It's what you want to possess. We'll do a lot to avoid discomfort. But, dude, we'll do a whole lot to get what we want. If I see something I want, I don't know about you. I don't know why I brought this over here. That was the dumbest thing. and I'm not going to sit down. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to sit down. I don't know about you. If I, like, really want something, <laughs> like my people, you know, and, like, see you later, world, because I'm going to go down four, five, 15 hours of online research, right? I'm going to see. I'm going to look every YouTube reviewer up, right? Anyone? Come on. Don't leave me. Thank you, guys. Okay, thank you. All right. See you later, universe. I want something. I will neglect everything. Throw caution to the wind. I don't bank money, right? Family, food, who cares? I am the type of personality, you're like, this guy's a freak. I'm the type of personality that can't enjoy something without becoming obsessed with it. Don't judge me. Some of you are the same way. You can't enjoy something without becoming obsessed with it. You know why? Because you know what I think is a stronger motivation than pain? Pleasure. I do. The things that we really, really, really want, we, you know, and we will get after it, right? The greatest, I think, now you might disagree with me, and I know that's not always true in all situations. I think the greatest catalyst for change um, is the pursuit of what you think will make you happy. I, I do. That's in my opinion. Uh, Blaise, actually, uh, Blaise Pascal also thought that. He's pretty smart. So uh, he said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both, attending it with different views. The will, the will, your will, never takes the least step but to this object. It is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but he's saying the real motivator in life is what you think makes you happy. Now, the question then, of obvious, the question of all questions, the cosmic question, <laughs> the universal question that every soul has to answer whether you want to or not, is how do you get it? How do you pursue happiness? What makes one happy? What do you need to be happy? That keep philosophers busy for millennia, which is, of course, where we splinter off into a million directions, isn't it? Now, I'll just, a couple popular pursuits of happiness. Um, people will make remarkable changes in their life, like remarkable changes. They will, uh, man, they'll endure pain, they will be insanely self-disciplined, man. They will sacrifice. They will stab people in the back. Y'all, people have murdered other people for this pursuit. You know what it is? Money. Money. Oh, man. Talk about a catalyst for change. Oh, my gosh. Talk about something that will change your habits. My I, I need more money. Because why? Well, we associate money with security. We associate money with flourishing. We associate it with abundance. For many American beautiful people sitting in Christian churches and pews today, the number one thing they are convinced that will make them happy is more money. Show me the money, right? 
I will do anything it takes. I will betray who I need to betray. I will stab who I need to stab in the back. I will abandon my family. I will lie. I will cheat. I will get up at 4 a.m. I will stay up until 1 a.m. if I could but get more money. Why? Because that's what you think makes you happy. I got real excited there, didn't I? I'm going to calm it down. Okay. We'll calm it down. People, y'all, will make remarkable sacrifices. They will be more disciplined than that you could ever think you could be disciplined to pursue something that they are convinced will make them happy. They will go, they'll neglect their body. They'll stop eating food because this is the one thing we are convinced will make me happy. And y'all, the question of what makes us happy, it splinters into a million weird caddies and alleyways, right? Like the things that we think will make us happy. Some of us, you know, some more common ones, right? Or like my body. I would love a six pack. Love that, right? right? Guys have six packs, you're like legit, right? So we get this vision of our body. And so we say, I'm going to hit the gym. I'm going to go on some horrible sugar-free, carb-free diet, right? And and they'll get after it. And and you know what it is? It's the vision of it. And they think, if I could but look like that, for men, I don't don't know, I mean, what is it, sexual allure? It's all different, Right? But there's something about that that is convincing us this will make me happy and we'll bend over backwards or go to yoga, do all sorts of things, right? To pursue that thing because we're convinced it makes us happy. Happiness, so there's all sorts of, now for other people, this is a good one, this is a good one. This is a good pursuit of happiness. It's actually, uh, it's much more simple than like stabbing people in the back or like, you know, neglecting their, it's much more simple than like self-discipline. They actually think happiness is having no self-discipline. Throwing off restraints. I eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I never go to the gym. That's happiness, right? Right? This was the undercurrent of the sexual revolution of the 70s and 60s, right? Throw off restraints. Always indulge. Never say no. That's happiness. And, of course, it's the air we breathe today in our society. You be you. You speak your truth. You do whatever makes you happy, right? That is happiness. And, guys, I'm telling you, it's like, it's like we're fish in water. We can't even see the fact that we're swimming in this ideology. That the, the, the throwing off all restraint, having zero self-discipline, is the thing that makes us happy. Now, of course, we could go all day long about all these weird pursuits. Let me think Dungeon and Dragons, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. Sad. I know. I should. I should have said that. You know, some of us, whatever, it's pickleball, whatever, you know, all sorts of things and all sorts of hobbies um, we think will make us happy. In fact, uh, hey, show the thing, uh, JT. I think I missed it. This is a funny thing. Yeah, I appreciate the Yeah, right? All sorts of things, whatever it is, right? We will make remarkable sacrifices for the things that we become convinced, even as simple as one, right, that will make us happy. And we'll begin to pursue that with all of our heart. But that's not all there is to the story. There are other motivations, 
for, and catalysts for change. In fact, the biblical authors routinely held up another motivation that apparently they thought would catalyze change in human hearts. And it's actually kind of the opposite of what motivates us every new year. Every new year, we sit down and we think, look at all the time I have before me. The year is laid out like a platter. What am I going to do with all the time that I have next, uh, this coming year? I have all the time in the world. The future is bright. Go for it. The Bible routinely points out something actually quite opposite of that. Not that you have so much time, but that you have so little. That your life, though it may feel long, is actually a blip on the screen. The Bible would use, you know why we have this kind of weird little slow-mo video of clouds and vapor? Because you know what the Bible says about your life? It says it's like a vapor. That's an analogy that the Bible uses to describe the length of your life. Welcome to church. A cloud, a vapor, a wisp. So we think, I've got all the time in the world, and when we think we have all the time in the world, it really doesn't matter what we do with our time, does it? Because we'll always have more time. But the Bible would say, actually, your life's more like a vapor. It frames, the Bible's going to frame your time, 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 as one of your most valuable assets, not because you have so much, but because you have so little. Job 8, verse 9, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing. Thanks, Job. <laughs> for our days on earth are a shadow. Psalm 90, I don't have this one up there. I'm going to read it to you. The years of our life are 70, maybe by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we all fly away. Romans 103, oh, Romans, Psalm 103. As for a man, man, if I could think of an analogy for man, like his life, kind of like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the fields. And then the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. And yet, you do not know what tomorrow may bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while. And then vanishes. This, of course, is highly unpopular to reflect on. We see it as a real downer. Thanks, Chris. Right? But this idea was such a compelling motivator for change. This idea was such a catalyst for change that you actually find a prayer in the Bible of someone asking to be shown how short his days are. Psalm 39, David prays, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. What kind of prayer is that? Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind, so my life, a breath, actually all mankind stands as a mere breath. A prayer in the Bible is, Lord, show me how fleeting my life is. Open my eyes to the fact that I will one day face the inevitable reality of my own death. Now, as pop unpopular <laughs> and discomforting as this is, we all know it's true, Christian or not. One day, your physical body will stop working. You will have, I will have a last breath. And that thought alone makes most of us extremely uncomfortable. One secular writer writes this, Our modern desire to keep death at a distance 
to insulate ourselves from a shadowy presence is a form of collective denial that diminishes our capacity to feel the fragility and fleetingness of our earthly being. Secular artist, secular author. He calls it collective denial. And what we're really trying to avoid, he says, is the fact that you are fragile when we think about this. We think, I like to think, I'm a substantial, hearty, strong individual, <laughs> right? Like, look how far I can run, and I exercise, and I do all these things, and I, I like that stuff, right? But in the face of death, all of a sudden, no matter how strong you are, no matter how accomplished you are, no matter how much money you have in the bank account, all of a sudden, your life feels extremely fragile, extremely exposed in the face of death. Every person sings a grand song until they have a close encounter with death. And it doesn't have to be our own. It could be someone else's. But those who have near-death experiences, maybe it's their own death or maybe it's someone else, they walk away from things like that deeply, deeply affected. You might have known someone maybe who had a near-death experience or maybe your granddad went to war and he came back a different person and, and granny just said he just came back different. When the reality of death comes in focus in our life, we walk away with a new pair of glasses. In which, I'm just saying with me, I know it's like, this is so religious. Okay, okay, just hang with me, okay? You skirt, I mean, it's just true, all right? <laughs> okay. You skirt on the sidelines of death, and you walk away with an extremely new value set. A whole new area of things now become in focus. Just even get outside of just religion. Just, just talk about this for a second, right? I was just listening to an astronaut talk about peering through the space station at, uh, of the, uh, the window of the space station at the Earth. And she said, as she sat there and stared at the Earth, she just was overcome with how exposed and fragile the globe appeared to her. It was just hanging in this vacuum of death and space and darkness. And the only thing... The only thing keeping humanity alive was this thin veneer of blue, which we call atmosphere. And she was like, just like struck deeply, profoundly struck with how fragile. And she came back just with a completely new perspective on life. When we realize that we ourselves are not as strong as we think, but really one day we'll die, it challenges what you think uh, is valuable in life. What will actually make you happy? Matthew McCullough, who's a Christian author, says this, has, says this. Death has an unmatched ability to expose the flimsiness of the things we believe give substance to our lives. Now, I don't care if you call yourself a Christian or not. It's just true. Death has an unmatched ability to expose the flimsiness of the things we believe give substance to our lives. This is, this is just true. Y'all, the inevitability of death, the fleeting nature of this life, this is not something that just Christians have discovered, right? Literally, anyone in their 70s can look you in the eye and say, in a blink, you'll look like me. <laughs> uh, you want even a more sobering thought. This is, again, just true. In 100 years, uh, there will probably only be two, three people that remember your name. It's just true. Let's think about it for a second. Um, do you know your great-granddad's name? I don't. Like, your, your kids probably will remember your name. Your, your grandkids, though, I mean, my, my, yeah, my, yeah. I don't, my, my kids don't know their great-granddad's name, right? Maybe you're like, you need to be a better family person. I don't know. It's just, I don't either, right? 
Christian or not, it's just true. We live, y'all, under the welcome delusion of the infinite. We think, I have infinite time. I have infinite energy. Well, some of us are like, no, I don't know, that's not true. Right? I got young kids, that's not true. Right? We think, I have infinite time. And what we're doing very often is ignoring our limitations. We don't ignore limitations. However, one of the great catalysts for personal transformation to many people has not been ignoring their limitation, but coming face to face with their limitation. Uh, my life is not infinite. I only have a certain amount of time. I will die one day. Therefore, what I do matters. You see, um, time uh, is the same as any other resource, and it is only valuable if it becomes scarce in your mentality. If you think you have all the time, and that's why diamonds and gold are valuable, because they're scarce, you see. If you're convinced that you have all the time in the world, then of course it doesn't matter what you do with the time. However, if you are made aware of the fact that you don't have all the time in the world, then all of a sudden, wow, you start looking at time differently. Wow, maybe, maybe it's more valuable than I think. Maybe it does matter, actually, what I do with my life, you see. Uh, you know, in fact, we, we quoted Blaise Pascal. Yeah. Um, do you know how he became a Christian? It's fascinating. He actually had a near-death experience where a horse-drawn carriage almost uh, fell off of a bridge. Um, and he decided, I should reassess my life and, and change a lot about his life. It's why many Christians talk about um, coming close to death, whether it's your own or if it's someone that you love, as a, uh, listen to this word, severe mercy. A severe mercy. Severe in that it's horrible and you'd never wish it on your enemies, but mercy in that it made you face the reality that you would have otherwise gladly ignored. That life is fleeting, right? And I know this just sounds so religiously tropey and all this kind of stuff, but it's, it's just true. Your time is not infinite. And therefore, if it's not infinite, what you do with it then matters, doesn't it? Uh, one might say it matters infinitely. Okay, so... It's the scarcity of time that makes a value. That's all, that's all my point. And in David's prayer in Psalm 39, he's saying, show me that my life is not infinite. If you read the whole thing, it's actually a psalm of repentance in Psalm 39, what we read. Now, here's the last thought, and we'll wrap it up and get out of here. What's really fascinating to me, though, um, is the kinds of things people tend to say when they think they are about to die. Very fascinating uh, what happens in a lot of people's imagination and what, what they need to express when they believe that death is imminent. Now, movies portray this over and over again, and it gets it pretty true to the point. If you've seen any movie when someone's about to die, uh, I just watched one over the break. And, and the main character was convinced that he was about to die. And he begins crying out this universal impulse uh, that people seem to have in the face of death. Think about it. Uh, what do you think people, it's remarkable, in the face of death, humans, they tend to want to say, need to say something. They typically don't cry out, if I just would have padded my savings more, if I, if I just would have invested in Amazon in 1999, <laughs> that's not what they say. Typically, they don't say, in the face of death, and they think they're about to die, if I would have just gotten rid of my love handles. <laughs> you know what they don't say in the face of death? If I only would have spent more time investing in my career. 
I wish I would have spent more time at the office. No, that's not what they say. In fact, in the face of death, all of a sudden what was valuable becomes useless. And in the face of death, an entirely new value set clicks in to crystal clarity. This is why people say, my whole life flashed before my eyes. Because you know what they saw? Waste. You know the impulse that most human hearts need to express in the face of death? And what this character shouted out when he thought he was about to die? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who are you talking to, bro? What's so- what do you mean, sorry? You know what people all of a sudden realize? I mean, movies portray this over and over and over again, right? A lot of times they're going to say, tell my family I loved them. What's that? Many times that's a reversal of values. It's a reversal of values. Death revealed something to them. And what came into crystal clarity was a different value set than they had been living out. And so many times in the face of death, people say, tell my family I love them. And many times they will say, to who knows who, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Now, you might say, well, that's just because our society has a religious background. Maybe, maybe. But it doesn't change the fact that when people come close to death, one of the overarching things they need to express is a deep sense of regret and shame. And and we tend to think things like, or they'll say this. You know this one, right? If I only would have had more time. Seen movies that say that, right? If I just had more. Anyone seen uh, Schindler's List? You guys remember that movie? Schindler's. I know, right? I spreke das nicht Deutsch, right? No, anyway. Um, He's not actually facing death, uh, but... He's leaving the Jews at the end, remember? All the guys that he rescued, he's leaving them. And you remember what happens? It's the most moving um, scene in the entire movie. He's overcome with shame and regret that he could have saved more people's lives. And he starts irrationally offering like cufflinks and rings. That even after living the way he did, selfless as he did, at the end, all he knows is he could have done better. And this is what many people feel. This is what death reveals to many people in their hearts, right? Death, y'all is the great revealer. And that it exposes our hearts, and all of a sudden, the things we thought were once valuable, all the things that now we see as silly, irrelevant, and other things become clearly valuable, and in the face of death, our hearts often want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Which brings me to the real motivator of Christian change, of catalyst for Christian change. Death is not the primary motivator uh, for change in the Bible. Glad to say. (laughs) Uh, For the authors of the Bible, there's one preeminent motivator for personal transformation. And it's not pondering the ways you've wasted your life and saying, oh, I wish I could have done better. It's receiving forgiveness for the ways that you've wasted your life. The biblical authors are going to say the real catalyst for change is love. Love. Forgiveness. And thus, it's not waiting till death to admit the fact that you've been living in balance and with wrong values. It's admitting it right now in in full view of God and all around you and receiving forgiveness over your life. For Christians, y'all, it's love, not the prospect of death that deeply changes us. We acknowledge the reality that 2 Samuel 14, 14 says that, hey, man, we all must die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yes, it's true. 
But the real thing that lights our fires isn't that life is short. It isn't looking forward in hope or looking back with regret. It's looking at the love of God. A love, according to the Bible, that's stronger than death. And if that feels to you like an impotent motivator, if that feels to you like something that, I don't know, man, is that, I would say that you've never felt it. Now, what you have felt probably is getting in a fight with someone. Has anyone getting in a fight with someone? And, and someone, the, the offended party that you've heard comes to you and they say, listen, man, I know, like I know you screwed up here and like uh, it really hurt me, but I, I love you so much. I'm, I, I forgive you. Can we, can, we just put it, can we just put it behind us? And, and has anyone ever felt this? And the, you know the embrace after a fight? You felt that feeling? You, does that do things inside of you? Does that like change the way you want to live? Like if you've done something wrong and someone just says, you know, I, do, I see it, you did it, you were a jerk. But man, I, I love you. I love you. And I forgive you. And I want to I keep going. Can we just put that behind us? Can, dude, you're telling me that doesn't change you? It changes us at the relational level. How much more at the cosmic level with God himself coming to you and saying, I love you. I forgive you. You've wasted stuff. Man, your values are so, you're so short-sighted, my goodness. But gosh darn it, I love you. And I, I'm going to do what it takes to forgive you so that you're in my favor again by sending his son. Y'all, the love of God is the greatest motivator for change in the universe. I'd like to say, I would like to suggest to you the only one that makes change last. It's the only lasting transformative thing in your heart that can happen, right? To trust the goodness of God over your future and believe the forgiveness of God over your past. And of course, it's taken on faith. So we're going to come to the table uh, like we do every week. And I know this whole thing might have just sounded cliche to you. It's like a stereotypic religious trope to bring up death, right? Okay, well, here's the, let me just point out this to you real quick. I was not bringing up death to you and saying, hey, well, if you die tomorrow, do you know where you're going to go? I, I didn't say that at all. Actually, I said, what if you live tomorrow? That's really what I was getting at. Not, not what if you die tomorrow. What if you live? What if you do get tomorrow? How should you then live? And acknowledging that the time that we have is limited, therefore it affects not, not only how we die, but how we live, you see. All right, so um, this is what I want to invite you to do. I don't know if you are going to take any other time today to be reflective or if you're going to, I mean, I have young kids, probably not going to happen for me. So we're just going to take a few minutes right now. We come to the table, and we make time for this every week. We're just going to have a little angle, a little intentionality with how we do it, okay? So right now, I want to ask you, get yourself comfortable. Sit however you want. If you are a prayer, maybe take a position of prayer. Maybe it's closing your eyes. Maybe it's putting your stuff down. Um, just get comfy. And I'm going to ask you some questions, Okay? I'm going to invite you to reflect with me um, on this past year and on this next year. And the first question I'll ask you is this. If you changed nothing about your life, same habits, same attitude, same everything, who would you be 
one year from now. Change nothing. Just acted the same, thought the same, did the same things. Who would you be one year from now? Okay. Who would you be five years from now? If you changed, who would you be 10 years from now if you changed nothing about your life? In other words, reflect with me about the trajectory of where your habits and your values are getting you. If I just lived how I'm living now, changed nothing, same habits, same attitudes, in 10 years, what kind of person would you be? And what I want you to recognize is things like this, anger. Things like lack of discipline. Lust. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Relational patterns that are cyclical, that you know are cyclical. Okay, what is, what is that doing to the person you're becoming? Here's one that's real fun. Imagine you're in that movie and death is imminent. Now, again, I'm not asking you to consider where you're going to go after you die. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, I'm asking you, what would it reveal to you right now about the way you currently live? If you, were, if you knew right now, I've got, I've got 24 hours to live, what regrets would you have? Any? What would your first impulse be to express? What would you need to say at the thought of the limitation of your life? This is not like religious manipulation. I'm just like, you're, we're going we're gonna to die one day. Everyone's going to die one day. Okay. If that day were closer, what's the one thing you would need to express to those around you? What's the one thing that you'd say, oh, God, I, oh, I wish I would have? Okay, last one. This is for you if you're a Christian in this room. Can you point at anything in your life right now that you'd say, the love of God is motivating this. Anything. Action, habit, the way you talk to someone, maybe the fact that you're in this room right now. Can you point at anything in your life to, and, and would say, the love of God is the thing that's making me do that. And if not, you are missing out, Christian, on the undercurrent of what it means to call yourself a Christian. Dude, it means that we are carried along by the love of God, that it's the motivator, it's the wind in our sails, it's the current underneath us. And if you can't point to anything in your life right now that's saying the love of God is the thing that's propelling me, you're missing out. Dude, it's the thing. It's the only thing that makes anything worth it. It brings delight. It brings pleasure and joy in places where you never thought it could exist. The love of God, y'all, is the reason to stay married. The love of God is the reason to wake early in the morning. The love of God, y'all, 
And if you can't point to anything, there's massive reassessing you have to do in your life. And the first thing that I want to invite you to do, guys, on the precipice of a new year, I'm not calling you to, you know, oh, repent. Dude, the first thing I want to say to you on the precipice of a new year is receive the love of God. That's what you need, man. You don't need a religious trope of like, oh, you're going to die one day, which is basically what you just got, right? No, the, the motivating factor that you need, the motivating thing that will change discipline to delight is the love of God. So right now, let me pray for us. Lord, over my brothers and sisters for, in this room right now, for whom your love feels like an aloof distant reality. It's not something real. It's not a tangible thing. They don't know what it feels like to rise early and to feast at the table of the kingdom of God. They don't know what it feels like to eat the bread of life. There's no delight in their pursuit of you. Would you, God, right now, show them your favor over their life? While we sit and we regret things that we've done in the past, you sit saying, I've forgiven. I have favor on you. You are my child. I love you. And I'm telling you guys, if we can just dare to have the audacity to believe Scripture when it says God loves us, it is the primary catalyst for change historically in the Bible. So God, we, I just want you to pray this simple prayer, then we'll come to the table. If you should be so bold in your heart, I want you to pray this prayer. And just get used to it because it's a prayer I'm going to have us pray all the time. I receive your love for me, God. You don't have to say it out loud. You can say it out loud if you want, but just whisper it in your heart. If you should be so bold to believe the fact that God is not in heaven with a lightning bolt waiting to strike you down, but rather is waiting to extend mercy to you in the face of Jesus because he loves you deeply. I receive your love for me.